Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Here we go with another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nugget. And as I say almost every day, we're really glad and appreciative that you are joining us to be part of our conversation uh, today. We've got some new data about the first two days of early voting, some more data about absentee voting that I'm looking forward to talking with our panel uh, about. Um, uh, so we'll, we're going to probably start with that. Uh, but at the same time, we're going to look at two congressional debates that took place yesterday, the two races that are uh, really in the focus of a lot of attention across the state, the 6th District race, which is, of course, northwestern suburban Atlanta, and the 7th District race on the northeastern uh, side of Metro. Um, Amy Coney Barrett continues today to um, face senators and the Judiciary Committee as they continue the process of uh, talking to her about the nomination. And uh, we may dig into that a little bit as the show goes on as well. So a lot to talk about. Let's get right to the panel. It's Wednesday, which means Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. Greg, how are you holding up? I'm doing great. I've moved to a different room in my house because my, uh, my basement was getting too old for me, and I moved to my daughter's playroom for some recent events, but now I'm in my bedroom, so all's good over here. <laughs> a full a tour of the Blue Steam House. Great. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Todd Reem uh, joins us today as well. Todd, of course, is the founder, publisher, editor-in-chief, and may, uh, you know chief writer of, uh, of uh, Georgia uh, Insider, which is, I think, one of the... Uh, best um, uh, daily news bulletins that you can get uh, in the state of Georgia. Todd, Todd, I just misnamed your report. Yeah, it's uh, georgiapundit.com. That's G-A Georgia Pundit. I know that. Yeah, I know. I really apologize. I know that. I've been saying that. You've been doing our show for seven years, and I've introduced you that way a lot. So I really am sorry that I got that wrong today. Um, but we're going to talk with you a little bit about one of the interesting stories you actually lead your newsletter today with, and we'll get to that in a while as well. And we've got Representative Terry Anulowitz, a Democratic representative uh, from Smyrna, uh, back with us on the show today. Terry, Yesterday, when you and I talked about your doing the show, exchanged notes about it, you said that you were a little slow in dealing with emails because you were taking a group of how many kids, what ages, to the botanical garden? I had five seventh grade girls at the botanical garden <laughs> yesterday, and I, I, I'm just starting to recover. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot of tween girl energy. <laughs> You know, Bluestein and you both um, deal with the difficulties of having younger children in a pandemic. And I know it's got to be at times uh, a real uh, effort on your parts. I, my wife and I say, thank God our children are now grown and take care of themselves. <laughs> Terry. <laughs> thank you. No, and I, I'm, I'm glad mine are in seventh and tenth. Greg's in a whole other universe. With, with with littler ones. You know. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It's good to talk to grown-ups. <laughs> My first and, and uh, still trucking through virtual school. Oh, yeah. 
right. So, Greg, let's start by looking a little bit about the data that we're seeing on early voting after two days of early voting. Um, so the uh, U.S. Elections Project, which is a, um, run by a professor out of the University of Florida who gathers data on uh, as many early voting states as he possibly can. He's now got data from 39 states, continues adding them every day. Georgia is one of them. And just for a big overview, uh, his latest totals show us that across the country, 13,260,987 people have voted. And among the states that are now reporting data that he gets include big uh, 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 states in terms of the Electoral College, um, battleground states, Wisconsin's in there, Michigan's in there, Pennsylvania's in there, Georgia is one of his states, and uh, so he's getting a lot of interesting data. Now, let's drill down to what he shows uh, for Georgia after two days of uh, early voting. He says that we've now uh, got a... Um, Turnout, we've so far had about 243,000 Georgians who have cast in-person votes in just the first two days of early voting. So that's a pretty remarkable number for uh, the first two days, Greg. It is, and, and, and Monday set a record for the first day of early in-person voting, but a reminder that these numbers will, will soar by the end. Usually the the last day of the three-week voting period is the highest in-person early voting day. And so expect numbers to, you know, in 2016, they doubled um, what, what we reached on Monday. Overall, more than 600,000 people in Georgia voted, and that includes people who have submitted their absentee and mail-in ballots. Um, that is a 285% increase. It's the total turnout for the 2020 election is 285% t- higher than it was at this point in 2016, according to Georgia Votes, uh, the website that does such a great job of calculating these numbers. So, uh, tremendous amount of early interest in these in voter participation, but those numbers will continue to increase. So, don't think that Monday was uh, was the high water mark by any means. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, Todd, according to the Secretary of State's data, which they released this morning, uh, there have now been uh, 500,000, basically, mail-in ballots that have been returned and um, accepted. There were, as, as we pointed out, 740-plus thousand people uh, altogether who have voted, and that includes the 242,000, basically, who voted in person over the first couple of days. So, um, we're, we're talking about, um, about, again, huge turnout early, and it's going to get bigger, as uh, Greg points out. As, as a Republican, I am always a little bit nervous uh, throughout the early voting process, as we have come to believe over the last couple of years, it's, it's become sort of commonly thought that Democrats outpace uh, Republicans in early voting and it always makes me a little bit uneasy to sort of leave all of our votes on the table on the, until the last day. But I will say that uh, the Georgia Republican Party and uh, the national organizations, and I say organizations because it's not always clear to me what's coming from the Trump campaign, what's coming from the RNC or the Georgia Republican Party or some completely unrelated third party group. But 
I've seen a lot more effort and emphasis put uh, this year on both the mail-in ballots and the uh, in-person by Republican campaigns, um, and and I hope to see that uh, that we that we haven't left a lot of uh, votes on the table by the end of the of the of voting, especially with the possibilities of large numbers of flu uh, people with flu, large numbers of people uh, potentially with COVID. If I walk into my polling place on election day and the guy or woman in front of me is coughing, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. It could be flu, could be something else. Uh, I don't don't know how that's going to affect voters' willingness to continue to stay online uh, as we get into uh, the fall weather. So, Terry, let me give you some more statistics, more data here, some of which comes from our Secretary of State, other of which comes from the U.S. Election Project. First, from, uh, from the Secretary of State. The top five counties with the highest turnout after two days. Fulton County had 86,000 uh, votes, 265. I'm giving you rounded numbers. Uh, DeKalb had 73,000-plus uh, voters the first two days. Cobb, 70,000. Gwinnett, 35,000. Cherokee, 20,000. So not surprising, really, that the metro Atlanta area had such high turnout. But here's some uh, from the voter U.S. Election Project. The highest percentages of voter turnout um, in person and absentee in non-metro areas were Green County, McIntosh County, Rabin, Talbot, and Oglethorpe, which um, that doesn't really tell us. There's no tea leaves to read there except to say that people are voting heavily in many counties across the state. Terry? No, that's absolutely right. I'm actually looking right now at the map that Cobb County puts out of the wait time. And in Cobb, there are, I think, one, two, three, there are 12 early voting sites open in Cobb County right now. We're going to have two days of Saturday voting in Cobb County. It has never been easier to vote early in Cobb County, whether you're voting at, you know, early at one of the locations or you're voting, you know, you're doing absentee by mail and you're taking it to one of the the dozen or so drop boxes that are scattered around the county. And looking at the the Smyrna Community Center is right up the street from my house. We pass it every time we come or go from our house. And right now the wait there is two hours. I mean, this is Wednesday and I wasn't surprised to see the lines on Monday. I was pleasantly surprised to see the lines on Tuesday and I'm, I'm sort of astonished that we're still having this level of turnout for early voting, you know, going into going into day three. And what I thought was something that we just saw on the first day because people were very excited to get out there and vote, I think is really just going to be a sustained level of very high voter turnout. And, you know, I, again, I, I'm glad that Cobb has done everything they've done to have as many locations as they have for early voting. And I'm astonished that we're still seeing this kind of turnout three days in. I think it's great. What, what Terry just said about the uh, wait lines, I was looking at Cobb's, uh, the, the, the wait times on Monday, and was seeing six hours and eight-hour waits. It, it's incredible to me. You add that with what Greg mentioned about uh, usually doubling the turnout on the last day of early voting. And what that tells me more than anything else is do not be in-person voting on the last day of early voting. Figure out a way to get it done between between now and then. If it were me, I'd probably go on a Friday about 6 p.m., uh, maybe 6.30 towards the end of, of that day uh, when I expect 
fewer people to be there. But it's just going to be a madhouse uh, at the end of the election and on Election Day. And so I'm glad that I have my absentee ballot. I'm going to try to vote in person. Uh, but if I don't, if if on Election Day the, the line is too long or there's something gone goofy at my precinct, I'm going to go ahead and just turn mine in at the ballot drop box. Yeah, a couple of other interesting statistics from the number crunchers over at Georgia Votes. About one one fifth of early voters in Georgia so far uh, didn't vote in 2016, and one fifth um, didn't vote in 2018. So it shows you a lot of new voters are coming out. It's also really important, and it's something that we all should remember. It's hard to read into these too much, too. It's hard to read into you know, all the voter enthusiasm, all these pictures of really long lines in Metro Atlanta and, and think that it only benefits Democrats because there are also long lines, two-hour long lines in Kingsland, Georgia, um, in, in Republican territories as well. They get less attention because they're outside of Metro Atlanta spotlight. So uh, we had the same issue in 2018, tremendous early voting, tremendous voter enthusiasm. Um, you know, a Republican victory. I'm not saying that's going to happen this time. It's just, it's harder to read into these numbers, but certainly a lot of new people who have not cast ballots in previous elections are, are turning out to vote right now. So, Greg, um, let, let's talk a little bit about, about the delays in voting, the length of time it's taking people to vote. Again, for the second day in a row, uh, uh, Gwinnett County reported very long wait times at some polling places, seven, eight hours Cobb County had a five-hour wait at least at a couple of one, maybe, or more locations. Um, and, and as I said in the headline to the show today, the Secretary of State's office is saying, well, that's a function of the fact that there are so many people who are voting early. Uh, there were glitches yesterday, Greg. My wife and daughter and I all voted yesterday at the uh, early voting location fairly close to our house. And uh, the line was not terribly long. It looked like maybe a 30-minute uh, line when we got in it at about 1 o'clock in the afternoon. But the polling place, the workers were having trouble connecting. They were very slow connection with those iPads that are used to check voters in. And so we ended up spending probably an hour and a half for a process that should have taken 30 minutes. So there were issues like that uh, yesterday in a number of more polling places. All that said, here's the question. There are concerns that just because there was a huge turnout, we shouldn't expect long waits. Isn't this the sort of thing that uh, that both counties and the state needed to have been anticipating longer ago? Are there enough machines out there? Are we going to have significant problems on Election Day? And that's the main question right now, right? I mean, there are some precincts that are reporting hours-long lines, but just a handful of voting machines, eight voting machines in some of these precincts. And when the Secretary of State's office says it's because of high turnout, well, as I mentioned earlier, we're not even close to the high watermark of where we'll be in two weeks. So if there's high turnout, if, this is, if there's long lines right now, imagine what it will be like the, the last week of early voting when um, a lot of the procrastinators, including probably me, will show up to to cast their ballots okay. early, and and we've talked about this over the over the over the last few months. But when when voters have to bring uh, lawn chairs as an accessory to cast their ballots, you know there's a problem. Uh, Todd and then Terry jump in on there. I, I think that one thing we've seen uh, consistently through this election cycle is that really one of the weak points at the county level and thus for the entire state voting system is 
uh, the personnel. And we've got uh, major Gwinnett, I think Gwinnett County was still struggling to fill up their election day. Um, and the, the need for the social distancing measures, the uh, wiping down of the stations, both slows everything down and makes voting more resource intensive for the counties that have to administer this. And I, I think what we're seeing a lot of is that they just don't have, they're limited by the personnel. Um, we have counties that have been bringing more computers online as it became apparent uh, that early voting is, is going to be as heavy as it is. But you can't just magically uh, wave a wand and have almost volunteers uh, who are trained on the equipment show up if you haven't uh, been able to find them bef before. Terry, jump yeah. in. Yeah, you know, I think there really are. There are two things happening here, and one is machines, and two is the personnel. You know, if you're asking someone the question, well, how many voter machines is enough, the answer will always be probably more than you currently have, no matter how many machines you have. And one thing that, you know, I was looking in Cobb, it would be helpful to know, for example, you know, there's a 180-minute wait right now at the main elections office on Whitlock Avenue. It'd be great to know how many machines they have, because I haven't, I haven't been in there, and I haven't, that's a question I haven't asked yet. The personnel is a big thing, too, because I know they've been recruiting more, more folks have volunteered to be poll workers than ever have in the past. They're trying to recruit folks, but a lot of these folks are new, and the training isn't happening the way it's happened in the past. You know, you're not having this in-person classroom training. A lot of it's happening online, which it needs to because there's a pandemic. That's a very different dynamic. And then they're also, I think, we're having some issues you know, with, with because of the pandemic, with social distancing, with spacing, you have a poll location that might have worked great for 15 machines or 20 machines if we weren't having a pandemic. But now that we have to have everything spaced so that we can be safe when we go vote, you can't fit as many machines in those spaces. You have to have, you know, spacing between the poll workers checking everyone at the poll pads. You have to have space for, you know, not just people to give their stickers, but for them to turn their styluses in. So their styluses can be re-sanitized and then redistributed. So the space needs are so much more than they were in 2018. So even, in, and again, you're having to use maybe fewer machines than you otherwise would simply because you've got to have everybody spaced out properly. Before we get off this subject, Todd, uh, on Georgia Pundit today, uh, you led with an interesting story. Uh, it, it came out of the, Valda the Valdosta Times, I believe, and the headline was, In Southern States, Data Shows Republicans Have a Historically Higher Use of Mail-In Ballots, and it looks specifically at Florida and uh, Georgia, I believe. Um, what can you tell it? You know, that's that, of course, is uh, contrary to what we're hearing about this election so far. We think we're hearing. Uh, what can you tell us about what that study shows? Well, one of the things that that I want to mention is that like any other uh, study of voting that comes from the data that's released publicly, it does not show how any individual voted. So you're sort of looking at correlations and not necessarily, uh, you know, the personal vote, vote choices. And so what they look at, instead of being able to know who voted for Donald Trump or who voted for Hillary Clinton in an election they looked at, they look at sort of the overall uh, Republican makeup of the geographic areas or of different groups. And one of the findings was that and, and this will come as no surprise to anybody who was involved in politics prior to, to 2018 or 2016, is that 
your absentee votes and particularly your, your male votes tend to be dominated by older people. Um, as a corollary, uh, in Georgia, older people tend to vote uh, Republican more. That is, of course, uh, most extreme among older white people versus all older people. And so this, this is based on correlations, but it really goes back to the fact that prior to 2016, Republicans felt like we had a built-in advantage when it came into any type of off-voting, whether it was off-year voting, whether it was runoff. If you look at the history of Fulton County uh, runoffs, uh, the only way that for 20 years Republicans have been able to get elected countywide in Fulton was in a runoff election because we had better mobilization. And I think we also had a voter base that was that tended older um, and tended to be more likely to vote. But it, it tells you that a lot of those advantages haven't gone away so much as they may have been muted by, uh, by the newfound democratic techniques. But it gives me hope that as Republicans, we will be able to catch up to the early voting um, and A, let me sleep better at night during the early voting period because I'm not worried about <laughs> what happens if there is a fire on I-85 uh, at 5 p.m. when all of our Republican voters are heading back from their offices in town out to the suburbs and get stuck in four hours of traffic. That That is my nightmare every every day. Um, and, and so I, I thought that was a, that was a good study to read about, especially since it runs contrary to what a lot of people uh, say is happening and and believe to be happening. And it's nice to see some data backed research. And I just wanted to add one one quick thing to this. You know, there are folks who, thankfully, right now, part of their job is to drill into these early voting numbers and to get this data. And one thing that really stands out to me is in Cobb, there are 11 early voting locations. You noted a moment ago that Cobb had. 70,000 people who have already cast ballots. Gwinnett County has nine locations, so only two fewer than Cobb, yet their early voting turnout is, is half at 35,000. And that's an interesting thing to figure out, okay, what's the reason behind that? And is it because of unprepared poll workers? Because that drills down to what, you know, every county runs their elections independently. And so that's a thing that's going to be interesting to, to investigate a little bit more. All right, Greg, before we completely move beyond the subject of early voting and absentee voting, I, one, one uh, question. Uh, you, you suggested a little while ago, and I, I kind of made the point, too, you can't read tea leaves. These are not tea leaves you can interpret with any, any sense of accuracy right now. But what is interesting is uh, Todd says that his hope as a Republican uh, is that states like a full, that, that older voters are going to step up with their absentee balloting, uh, and and that gives him hope in early voting that the Republicans will not uh, uh, lose uh, uh, ground in in terms of uh, electing uh, Republican uh, officials. But Greg, this year, in terms of the presidential race, particularly, we now know that older voters are much more skeptical of Donald Trump than they were four years ago. And all of the polling and all the demographics from the crosstabs in those polls suggest that just because older voters might be uh, casting their ballots in larger numbers, that doesn't necessarily uh, uh, signal good news for Donald Trump, Craig. Yeah, we haven't seen that shift in Georgia as much as we've seen in some of the national polls. But of course, all the Georgia polls are showing a really close race. But you're right. And look, 
I mean, the, the, the other big dominant factor in this election is, and, and both parties agree on this one, is that about two-thirds of voters are going to cast their ballots early in some form or fashion, whether it be early voting, in person, or by mail, um, which shows you uh, just just how, how much that has shifted. You know, in past elections, it might have been closer to a half. Now it's going to be around two-thirds. So the, that's what the Secretary of State's office anticipates um, around that number as well. Um, and then of the election day voters, or at least our polls show, um, you know, Republicans are expected to dominate the election day voters voters themselves. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. And people, you know, people might misstate what their what their true intentions are when they're asked in these polls. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our first break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I would like to look at the 6th and 7th District congressional races where the um, candidates debated yesterday. It'll give us an opportunity to see exactly what our panel thinks is unfolding in those races. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Representative Terry Nolowitz of Smyrna is with us. Todd Reem, uh, Georgia Pundit, uh, editor, publisher, chief writer, uh, and uh, uh, one of our favorite uh, Republican panelists on the show, and Greg Bustein, AJC political reporter, who joins us on most uh, Wednesdays, which we're fortunate uh, we're able to have him do that. Uh, Greg, um, let me go back to you to start again. We saw six and seventh district debates yesterday. I want to start with the seventh district um, for no particular reason, just to start somewhere. I'm going to play sound, one sound exchange between the two candidates, Rich McCormick, the Republican, Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat. And, and I picked this bite and the one we're going to hear from the sixth district debate, not because they were necessarily the most important exchanges necessarily, um, but they do, they do give us a kind of a feel for how these two are uh, talking about each other, the kind of energy they're bringing to their campaign. So let's listen as Carolyn Bordeaux, who you will hear first, uh, talk about uh, the issue of uh, uh, COVID and how Republicans have dealt with it and how she feels about the way her opponent, Rich McCormick, has been dealing with the virus. My opponent has said we've reached herd immunity on June 1st. On September 8th, he said the same thing. He is showing up at events not wearing a mask that are in close quarters. He is not following CDC guidelines, and this is part of the problem. I follow CDC guidance. I follow the governor's guidance. Uh, I'm usually social distance from people. When I get together with pictures, I'm okay with that. You're talking about mostly young, healthy people who are asymptomatic, which the World Health Organization said gives me a low chance of communicability in, in short periods of time. I am the medical professional here. I have tested negative for the disease recently, uh, and I think I'm doing things right when I'm the one that treats patients for a living. Uh, to think that I'm unsafe is just as dishonest as anything. Call a Marine, call a physician unsafe, somebody who's been working for their community their entire life, I think it's, uh, once again, shows the divisiveness of politicians. So, Greg, a few things we can say about that. Number one, COVID-19, the pandemic, is continuing to be a huge issue for candidates in every race in Georgia and across the country, for that matter. 
two, we haven't talked much about the 7th District race. It was interesting that Carolyn Bordeaux on a number of occasions attacked McCormick in terms of his handling of the virus because he is a physician who talked, who was given a chance in this debate to talk about it. He's been on the front lines dealing with people with uh, COVID-19, but she was more than happy to nevertheless go after him for failing to do a good job of protecting himself and the people who come to his events around him. So talk a little bit about what you think is happening and the dynamic between the two of them, not just in this exchange, but in the entire race. Yeah, I'm glad you picked this clip because it really epitomizes a lot of the back and forth in this in this Gwinnett-based district and, and shows you also how coronavirus has really shaped all these debates, including the Senate debate that we, that we had um, on Monday between Purdue and Ossoff. Um, you know, this has been this has been an echo of, of the presidential campaign with Democrats accusing Republicans of downplaying the risks of the virus, of not taking it seriously enough, of not abiding safety guidelines and I've been I've been at events where where Dr. McCormick was at where he wasn't wearing masks um, and, and and Republicans countering that that the you know economic safety and economic livelihood is just as important as as, as public health and uh, and then in this case with Rich McCormick who's an emergency room physician saying I, I know better than, than than anyone else about these these risks because I'm I'm facing them every day uh, from a hospital floor. So, Todd, I know we know you had a candidate in the Republican uh, primary, um, Renee Unterman, and uh, she was not able to uh, come emerge as the candidate McCormick beater. But I do think, uh, regardless of that, your take on how this race is unfolding is very uh, important right now. Well, first, I want to say that that I was not professionally engaged in the in the seventh district in any capacity for any campaign. She, uh, Renee, is a long term friend of mine. Um, but I, okay. I, I want to say that there, there is uh, two things going on. One is that that 7th District is driven not so much by the candidates right now as it is being driven by third-party uh, advertising. I watched last night and saw an, a Carolyn Bordeaux trashing ad, a Rich McCormick uh, uh, advocating advocacy ad, um, all of which were paid for by somebody other than any of the campaigns that were involved in this. Um, so that, that is an interesting aspect of it. It's, it's sort of the modernization of, of the 7th District. I think that looking at uh, past election results, the, the this year's primary elections, the turnout um, in Forsyth and Gwinnett counties in the 7th District uh, leads me to believe that Republicans have an uphill battle in that seat. But... Greg was talking about sort of uh, what may have led Dr. McCormick to to, to do what he's doing. Uh, I, I want to say something else uh, that you sort of get when you if you go out in the world in the in the seventh district or further out. My dad lives in uh, Jackson County, which is just like Gwinnett County, but more so. It's a little bit further out, a little bit more Republican, and people there openly scoff at at mask wearing. Um, if you go to restaurants, they're open. Uh, people are walking around without masks. Um, and it, it's almost a test of your, uh, your, your intestinal fortitude or your uh, Americanness or whatever uh, to not wear a mask out there. And, and so I think there's some level at which any Republican candidate's 
actions are going to be shaped by that part of the electorate, which is which is very vocal uh, and uh, very confrontational right now. Uh, they're they're a little bit uh, a little bit stirred up about about those specific issues and and. When a candidate is going out in public, he's got to be, he or she has to be concerned with what they're doing. Not only how does it look to voters, to the three undecided voters that may be in a congressional district, but how does it affect the, his, his own or her own voters in their party and their willingness, their intensity, their uh, level of support for that particular candidate? And, And I think that's part of what, what shapes the whole mask wearing for candidates like that. So, Terry, just to set a larger stage for that 7th District race, of course, that district, uh, the incumbent, Rob Woodall, decided not to run for re-election. It's been a Republican district for uh, quite some time. Obviously, it has shifted, and we all know that Gwinnett County, uh, which is the dominant uh, uh, force in the district, uh, went uh, uh, for Hillary Clinton uh, as the county turned bluer and bluer in the 2016 election, uh, Forsyth continues to have an influence because it's much more heavily Republican up there. But in any case, you do have um, a, a Carolyn Bordeaux, who's been a public policy analyst. She uh, was a budget analyst for the state Senate. She teaches at uh, Georgia State University, McCormick, uh, a Marine, a veteran, and an emergency room physician much more conservative. He said in the debate yesterday, I believe in less government, uh, uh, and, and I think more government is a problem. Uh, Bordeaux, on the other hand, talked about uh, wanting government to work uh, in, in the best interest of people who need the most help. Uh, so the cl- there are clear lines here, in other words, for uh, uh, conservatives and more progressive voters to make their decisions. But as Todd points out, there are probably very few undecided voters. I completely agree with that. I mean, you know, anyone who seems surprised that COVID was one of the biggest issues in that debate probably doesn't have two kids down the hall from them like I do who are doing school online right now. Of course, COVID is one of the biggest issues in these races because it's the biggest issue in the world right now. Um, You know, what's interesting about Dr. McCormick is that the Medical Association of Georgia endorsed him and then the Medical Association of Georgia was promptly repudiated by dozens of their physicians who wrote a letter to them excoriating the organization for having endorsed him because, as, as they, you know, they say, and as Carolyn Bordeaux pointed out, he hasn't taken this as seriously as, as he probably should have. You know, he's saying he's following the governor's guidance, but if he's going to rallies with more than 50 people and they're not practicing social distancing and they're not wearing masks, no, he's not. In fact, he's in direct violation of the governor's executive order. So it's disingenuous to say he is following the governor's protocols or anyone's protocols. Okay, I, I'm going to step away from that seventh district, and I want to talk about the sixth in a moment. But as long as you brought that up, Greg, without going into the details at this point about the Donald Trump Jr. rally up in Kennesaw the other day, I do think it's interesting in terms of the context of Rich McCormick says following the governor's guidelines. Uh, your colleague, Jim Galloway, at, uh, I guess, was at the event up there in Kennesaw with you the other day and noticed that very few masks, no social distancing, and the governor himself was was there, right? Yeah, I've been to a lot of events, um, a lot of Republican and Democratic events. That that was the one that was, the, the, I feel like, most defied all CDC and state guidelines. Of course, there's a state restriction on more than 50 people. There was you know, uh, hundreds of people inside this indoor gun range, very, very few masks. 
um, lots of choke points for people to, to, to gather. And about the only place where people could socially distance was the press pen, uh, thankfully for me, and the, uh, the stage. So you had big groups of people gathering um, and no apparent signs of, of following the guidelines whatsoever, whether it be social distancing or wearing okay. masks. I just wanted to make that point in terms of McCormick saying he's following uh, the governor's guidelines. Um, so, uh, Greg, put a button on this conversation about the 7th before we talk about the 6th. If Carolyn Bordeaux wins that seat, uh, it completes a, a Democrat. Well, we don't know what's going to happen in the 6th, but we do know that a Democrat now holds the 6th district seat, Lucy McBath. If, in fact, Bordeaux wins, uh, it really, really tells us that Northwest and Northeastern Metro Atlanta are firmly Democratic territory, yes? Yeah, if, if, if Lucy McBath holds on and, and Carolyn Bordeaux wins, you're right. Yeah. And look, this was, supposed to, this, was, this was the race in 2018 that was seen as more competitive than the Lucy McBath uh, uh, contest in the 6th in the District by some prognosticators. And, and remember, this was the closest U.S. House race in the nation in 2018 between Carolyn Bordeaux and Rob Woodall. Um, so a lot of folks, a lot of the, the Washington crowd uh, that rates these these races um, feel like Carolyn Bordeaux comes in with that advantage, comes in as the odds-on favorite. All right, um, let's turn to the 6th District. Um, Terry, that's your district. Um, so let's listen to one exchange from the debate between Lucy McBath and Heron Candle remembering that Karen Handel held that seat after winning the special election against John Ossoff. Uh, she lost that seat after a year in office when the, when the uh, 2018 election came along and Democrat Lucy McBath took it away from her. Handel emerged from the Republican primary to face McBath now in the general. Here's an exchange about health care between the two of them from the debate. You'll hear Lucy McBath first. I've co-sponsored legislation in Washington that actually would lower the cost of prescription drugs, treatment and care for people like me that have pre-existing conditions. Uh, but my opponent's record on health care is absolutely dismal. Karen Handel supported bills that would actually raise the cost of health care and treatment and prescription drugs for people that have pre-existing conditions. We've got about 45,000 children under the age of 17 in this district that have pre-existing conditions. Uh, my opponent also attempted to cut funding for cancer screenings uh, provided by Planned Parenthood. And I'm so thankful that she was not successful in doing so, but I promise to continue to fight to make sure that uh, healthcare is accessible to each and every one. It is not a privilege. That is your right as an American. You know, Lucy McBath has spent the past two years, and especially in this campaign, blatantly lying about my record. I have always supported protections for people with pre-existing conditions. I had legislation that I co-sponsored in Congress to do just that. She has had an opportunity for two years to pass legislation for pre-existing conditions, and she hasn't. Why? Because the Democrats don't want to solve the problem. They want a political talking point. All right, so we just cut it short because she went on in a, in a direction that didn't really add uh, to what she had already said. But, uh, Terry, I played that again because it shows you the tension between the two of them. Um, I, I'm a little puzzled by the uh, allegation that Lucy McBath had a chance to save pre-existing conditions and didn't. The Affordable Care Act 
protects Americans with pre-existing conditions. It is already set in law. So I was a little puzzled by, by that. And maybe one of you can explain where she was going with that. If not, pick up on another aspect of what you heard. Actually, that was it was striking to hear to hear Handel say that because you know, and you're right. It, it is it, it's inherent to the ACA. It's it's in there. But also talking about you know passing legislation and Karen Handel, having served in Congress, knows that passing legislation isn't just writing a bill and dropping it and 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 you know getting even at this point getting even the House to vote on it. Right? If it's, if you have to pass, it's got to go to the Senate. And I don't know if the Senate is something they'd be willing to take up. So it's a very striking thing for her, for her to have said for, for multiple reasons, for procedural understanding reasons, as well as for reasons, as you mentioned before, it's in the ACA. Um, Todd, what about that sixth district contest? Um, Karen Handel's a survivor. She continues to come back to life after people have written her off uh, politically. How do you see that race unfolding? First, I want to address the ACA. I, I think that part of what yeah. uh, what uh, Karen Handel was responding to, part of what uh, David Perdue, I think he's been talking a lot about pre-existing conditions. What they're a lot of what they're responding to is continued questions about the future of the ACA, uh, specifically if we have hmm. a, a new majority or a different majority on the Supreme Court. Uh, so I think that's part of the backdrop. As far as Karen Handel, she is one of the most able politicians I've ever seen in 30 years. Uh, she is very good. And I sometimes wonder if part of her ability to succeed in an election isn't being the underdog, um, because that's when she seems to really thrive is when she shouldn't be winning. Uh, you know, when when she was uh when she ran for governor, uh, she did much better than a lot of folks expected, uh, despite and, and eventually lost out to Governor Deal. Uh, but she is a is a great fighter and has shown a willingness and an ability to adapt to the changing campaign climate. There has been a sea change since her first election in how uh, politicians act and in what it appears to be the expectations of voters for how politicians will act. Uh, it's hard to think back to the late 90s, early 2000s as being a more genteel uh, type of politics, but compared to what we have now, it really is a sea change and she's adapted to it. Now, whether we want uh, to adapt to that kind of uh, political behavior is an open question. But it, I also suspect that Karen Handel and Lucy McBath have been spending a lot more time uh, on video conferences with each other than has been the norm in the past. And there's, there's pro it's easier to have a debate or a forum or something like that since nobody has to leave home. And I wonder if part of what you're seeing is they're just sick and tired of sitting there looking at a screen at each other's faces. <laughs> Greg, before I take a break, one quick, I'd love to get one quick observation from you. Um, I noticed two things yesterday. One, what, what uh, Todd says is certainly true. There's no question that Karen Handel is a fighter. She is uh, aggressive and determined to make her points. That's either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on whether you like her philosophy and like that style. And the other thing I noticed is Lucy McBath, who came into politics really just as a mom who tragically had lost her son in a gun incident um, and has 
grown into a really polished uh, 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 candidate. She was very, very poised and articulate. It was interesting to see the contrast yesterday. Yeah, you know, we were talking about this before we went on air. Just two years ago, Lucy McBath was talking about running for a Cobb County-based statehouse seat. That, and then it was the day of, of qualifying that she changed her mind and ran for Congress instead. And, and, and she's become very comfortable in the spotlight in a way that, uh, that, that, that's really helped her, her candidacy. And, of course, Karen Handel's been through it all, uh, several statewide races, and run for the uh, U.S. House in 17 in the most scrutinized national contest I can ever imagine. All right, I got to get to a break because uh, we're running short on time. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. With the few minutes we have left, I want to see if we can kind of quickly go through just a couple of subjects here. One, first, Greg, right before we went on the air, at least the first time I saw it, uh, you had posted at AJC.com a uh, story about a new Doug Collins ad, which you describe as one of his most scathing TV attacks yet on U.S. Senator Kelly Leffler a spot that frames the fellow Republican as a greedy insider who uses her public office to boost her financial bottom line. Greg, talk a little bit about that and the dynamic of that race right now. Yeah, this might be his closing attack line. And of course, it involves those stock transactions uh, that made so much news way back in March and April, uh, accusing Kelly Leffler, Senator Leffler, of uh, abusing her public office and that senator's only briefing on January 24th about the coronavirus uh, to profit uh, financially, um, and he's been making this attack throughout. But today, he put four hundred thousand or so dollars behind it on, for TV ads, at least for this week uh, alone, uh, to make that case on on cable and broadcast airwaves. And uh, it's 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 been it's been probably one of his most salient attacks because way back when this this uh, broke, um, you know, months ago, uh, her poll numbers suffered. Um, there was calls for. Senator Leffler to step down or at least not run for a full two-year term. Since then, she's stabilized and she's ahead of Doug Collins in, in, in many polls, if, but not by a large margin, but by a few percentage points. Um, but this seems to be, and we always kind of, and I think both campaigns always figured this is where it would end up. This seems to be uh, the angle that Doug Collins is going to take throughout the rest of the race. And of course, Uh, in next week's first debate between the two of them and and other top candidates. Which you'll be, you're going to be part of that debate team on Monday. You'll be, good, good, good. We'll look forward to that. Uh, Terry, uh, here's the thing. We've talked about on the show before that while Collins and Leffler are at each other uh, tooth and nail, uh, Raphael Warnock particularly has been able to emerge pretty much unscathed. Neither Matt Lieberman or any other Democrat in, in the race has much money to put into TV ads. Raphael Warnock has a lot. Warnock runs these very positive, very uplifting TV commercials. But his time is coming uh, because if, if he ends up as the Democrat in a runoff with one of those two Republicans, the ammunition that they're preparing to unleash against him between November 3rd and January 5th, the runoff is going to be intense. No, I think I think that's right. I think I think that it's a wise approach he's taking right now to set himself apart from the pack as someone who is positive, someone who has an optimistic vision for Georgia. But I think if there's anything we want right now, it's a little bit of hope. It's a little bit of optimism. But you're absolutely right. You know, we get past this election and Warnock's in 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 the runoff. It doesn't matter if it's Collins or Leffler who he's running against. It's going to be, I mean, 
anything is going to go and, and they're going to have, they're not going to leave anything out. And so he's not going to be able to leave anything out. And that's going to be interesting to see how he then evolves as a candidate. You know, he, he's a minister, he's, he's a reverend, he is a, a voice for, you know, moral clarity and certitude. And he's going to be thrown into a very ugly campaign. And this is the first race he's ever run. So it's going to be very fascinating to see how his team helps navigate him through, through that, through those waters. Well, we've already seen hints of how Republicans will go back, go after him. Uh, just recently, uh, he, it, a story from Republicans saying that he had been called in to uh, b- back up Jeremiah Wright when Jeremiah Wright was under fire. Barack Obama was under fire for having a minister who uh, what who who Republicans called a radical revolutionary, whatever. But Todd Ream, how much damage is the Georgia Republican Party doing to itself in this split? between Collins and Leffler backers? I'm not, I'm not uh, really worried about Republican voters coming back. Uh, I think there is, and, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is the what used to be a built-in um, advantage for Republicans when it comes to things like runoff elections in terms of mobilization. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there are a whole lot of Republicans who, if their chosen candidate doesn't make the runoff, are going to suddenly be okay with the Democrat. Um, and so it's going to be... It's no, but be I'm asking of, about Republican insiders. I'm asking about party people. Oh, we, we all kiss and make up after the election anyway, you know, as we smoke cigars and drink expensive <laughs> scotch. It's all good. Uh, very, very little damage <laughs> Do think- being done to the friendships behind the scenes. <laughs> Greg Bluestein, Todd Ream just gave us the perfect snapshot of a mainstream Republican <laughs> drinking expensive scotch and smoking cigars. Greg, do you think well, Todd Wright that this isn't hurting the? <laughs> yeah, do you think Greg uh, that Todd's right, Greg? Um, to a, to a degree, I think everyone will, will unite on the Republican side, uh, at least in, you know uh, to the public. But it's also hard to see that these attacks not being picked up by Warnock, you know, the, whether it be Leffler or, or Collins, he's going to use the same attacks they pummeled each other with uh, in the run-up to January, whether they be stock transactions, whether they be, um, you know, uh, Doug Collins, politician, whatever they might be, he's going to take advantage of those, and I think he's going to build on those. Okay, there does yeah. seem to be an assumption that we're going to see a Democrat and a Republican, uh, perhaps possibly Warnock, and then one of the Republicans in this race, and it won't be the two Republicans. So that is, uh, Terry, I'm, always, I'm going to thank you because we're completely out of time. I know you're trying to get another word in, but we just plain don't have any more time, Terry. Thank you for being with us. Todd Ream, uh, Georgia Pundit. Everybody should subscribe. It's a great, great daily uh, uh, news report. And Greg Bluestein, thank you for being with us. That's it. We're out of time. I'm Bill Nygut. Back tomorrow. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. And go get a flu shot. See you tomorrow. <laughs>